chapter 25 of Matthew's Gospel, beginning verse 14. It is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. And to one he gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one, to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. And in the same manner the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And the one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. The one also who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted to me two talents. See, I've gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. That word is profitable. Well done, good and profitable, useful servant. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore take away the talent from him, and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, who has shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance." But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. And cast out the worthless, the unprofitable slave, the useless servant, into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing teeth. As you probably are aware, we just returned from Falls Creek. So I come to you through bloodshot eyes. <laughs> I was sitting in the tabernacle the other night, it's a true story, and uh, listening to the um, conversation going on behind me. Um, have you ever sat among young people and listened to the conversations? That, that'll bless you. This guy had a... a um, magazine of uh, wrestlers. 
they were checking out these professional wrestlers, had this blood all over them. And he was impressing this young lady he was sitting by, how many wrestling matches he had seen. I saw a few in the tabernacle, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and on the grounds I saw a few. And I was thinking as I uh, sat there, you know, looking out over that wave, that sea of young people, 6,000 of them. I wonder what we'll do with um, what we received this week. Will we go back and um, make any kind of changes in the world where we live? And I thought of all the um, young people in the history of the world. Probably these young people of our time are the most gifted and blessed and talented and privileged. And therefore, great is the accountability of these young people when they stand before God. For unto whomsoever much is given, much shall be required. And then I thought of us. As a matter of fact, I was thinking often of getting ready for the sermon today, knowing that I wouldn't have that uh, quiet time of preparation that I normally have. I thought of us. For a hundred years almost, people have come to this church and received of the Lord. And we've taken from Him for over a hundred years. Can you imagine um, if we, for the last 35 years, if we averaged 300 adults and young people and, and older children, that'd be about right. If for the last 35 years we averaged 300 for two hours in this church on Sunday, that amounts to an equivalent of over a million hours. I bet you've heard everything there is to hear. I bet you that you've heard every sermon there is to preach, every insight that could be, you've probably already heard. It's mind-boggling to imagine how many sermons on how many texts you, that has been preached, you have heard in this place. Well, what have we done about it? Over a million hours of preaching, receiving from the Lord, how many changes have we made, has that made? For you see, the real question is not what new insight can I learn now? The real question is, what am I going to do? What have I done with the knowledge I already have? and the insight I've already gained. For truth is not something that you put in your pocket to use later. It's not an ornament you nail on the wall to look at. The truth is an instrument that is to be used to the glory of God. And truth, that is spiritual truth, is never dispensed except that it is to be obeyed. And so this text this morning deals with, at the heart of it, is the emphasis that, that Jesus has a right to expect a very practical response from what we have received from Him. At the heart of this text is the message as to how we treat or what we can do with what we receive from the Lord. And I'm thinking about primarily, about um, insight and knowledge, how we treat that and what we do with it. 
There are only two things we can do with it. When we take these things from the Lord that we take every Sunday over a million hours worth or at Falls Creek or wherever, there are only two things we can do with it. We can obey it and become a faithful servant or we can ignore it and become useless, he called him, unprofitable, worthless, useless, Did you notice that the man who does nothing with what he receives from the Lord is called worthless, useless? There's an Old Testament parable that tells, that kind of says what I'm trying to say. And God said to Jeremiah, go down and watch this man work on a wheel, this clay, this potter. And he did. And he watched him develop that vessel from the clay. Now, I don't know all that that uh, parable teaches, but I do know that it teaches this. It teaches that both the potter and the clay gained. When the clay responded in kind and obedience to the, to, the, uh, to the potter, to the potter's plan and purpose, both gained. The clay gained beauty and design and purpose. But the potter gained, he profited also. He gained an instrument to use and he gained a medium through which he could express his creativity, power, and purpose. Now my question is this morning, what has God gained from saving you? Oh, you have gained. You have gained forgiveness of sin and peace of mind and you've gained an inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled, faded not away, reserved in heaven, kept in heaven for you who are the called. You have gained, but what has God gained from your salvation? I mean, what has He gained from saving you? And the primary purpose we need to remember of our salvation is not for our benefit, but for His glory. The scripture says that He redeemed us unto Himself. We are too man-centered. I tell you, the Bible is God-centered and God saved you in order that He might benefit. Now watch this. If you do nothing from what you have received from the Lord, the Bible says that as far as God is concerned, you are useless, careless. And carelessness invites disaster. Now when Jesus talked, these disciples just sat there enthralled. I'm convinced of it. I mean, even those who tried to trip him up came back to say nobody has ever said what he said. You talk about new insight. They were getting it. But these disciples just sat there and listened to Jesus enthralled by the message he taught and preached. And I can just see their mouths dropping open and they're glancing at one another when he said, every tree, every branch that does not bear fruit, he casts it away. I don't understand all that that means. That's kind of shakes me up, especially when I try to hold to my doctrine of the eternal security of the believer. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he cuts it off and casts it into the fire. I don't know all that means, but I know it means that carelessness invites disaster. 
And one day they were walking with him and he came to this fig tree and he was hungry and he saw that it bore no fruit. It was just full of leaves and he cursed it and it withered and died immediately. And when the disciples asked him, how did that tree die immediately? Jesus didn't even answer them. He just began to talk about the kingdom of Israel as though he were trying to teach them why leave the tree there to take up space if it bears no fruit and fulfills no purpose? Cast it down, cut it down, and remove it. I don't know all that means kind of shakes me up a little bit, but I do know that it means that when you receive from the Lord and you do nothing with it, you invite His wrath. Now there are three um, truths, simple truths, I mean real simple, because I'm real simple. And uh, I'm going to confess these simple truths, but I'm going to tell you that I'm not that well prepared to be too profound, having spent a week as a sponsor at Falls Creek. <laughs> simple truths, I want you to get them, number one. That we have a responsibility to do something with what God has given us is inescapable. We cannot escape the responsibility to do something with what God has given us. Now this parable identifies two, two kinds here. He identifies a slave and he identifies a master. Now it's not hard for us to figure out where we fit. We are not the master, we're the slave. And he said, the master gave of his possessions to the slave. And we know that we're the slaves. And being a servant of God, we have an inescapable responsibility to him. Now I need to remind you what the talents are in this text. Um, a talent in that time was a chunk of silver. Some, somebody said, I read somewhere where it, it was estimated that a man might work 20 years for one talent of silver. 20 years. I mean, you talk about a, 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 some, some, some worth, some wealth. He was giving him that. In other words, this man was giving out of his abundance out of his resources to these slaves in order for them to take that and use it. And it was an honor to receive it. It was a great possession. But the talent doesn't mean that now, of course. When we think of talent, we think of an ability that's kind of inherent, born into us. That's not what it means either. It means a capacity or an opportunity that a man would not have if God had not given him it. It's not good English, but... It means a capacity or an opportunity that a man now has to do something that has been given him out of the mercy of God and has been given him with a responsibility to take it and do something with it for the glory of God. Sharing with our kids in a devotional other night, 1979, Mother Teresa won the Nobel Peace Prize. She's a saintly Catholic nun, 70 years old. And she came to Washington on, in, in 1979 as the result of being chosen for the Nobel Prize of Peace. They thought that she'd come to the Capitol 
And so all the reporters and the power brokers were there to receive her. Everybody wanted on television to be around her. She didn't come to the capital. She went to the slums of Washington, D.C., Anacostia area, it's a slum area of Washington. And so the power brokers and the reporters went to her and they were snapping flash bulbs and, and pictures and they were popping questions at her. Somebody said, what is your purpose for being here, Mother Teresa? She said, I'm here to find and experience and to know and to give the joy of living. And somebody said, well, that takes a lot of money, doesn't it? That's the question you ask in Washington. I suppose, it takes a lot of money, doesn't it? She said, no, it just takes a lot of sacrifice. And one of her order, a monk came to her and was complaining that his supervisor in the order he thought was limiting him, as hindering his ministry. And so he complained to Mother Teresa and he said, I, my vocation is to work for lepers. I want to work for lepers. And Mother Teresa stared at the monk for a long time and then she smiled and said, my son, your vocation is not to work for lepers. Your vocation is to belong to Jesus. Your vocation and mine is to belong to Jesus. We're slaves of Him. We're servants of Him. And He has entrusted us with this opportunity, this capacity for ministry and service. And we have an inescapable responsibility to that. And James was talking about that when he said, to him who knows to do good and does it not to him, it is sin. Are there things that you know you need to be doing? Are there things you know you need to be doing? And if you're not doing them, you're living in sin. For knowledge brings responsibility. And insight brings accountability. And Havener was right when he said, a man will not be judged by the sin he commits, but by the light he refuses. Second simple truth. There is no excuse for doing nothing. Oh, I know we give a lot of excuses. Charles Colson, I've got his new book, Loving God. It's a fascinating book. You need to read it. Charles Colson of Watergate infamy says, and he's true, we have an infinite capacity to justify every act we commit, an infinite capacity to rationalize away everything we do. It's what the, psycholo the psychologists call the self-serving bias. Now we give all kinds of excuses for doing nothing, but we have no excuse. And the reason why it is absolutely inexcusable to do nothing with what we have received from the Lord is there are two reasons that are found in the text. The first is found in verse 15. And he, and he says that each was given, underline the word, a talent according to his own ability. Underline that, according to his ability. What he was telling us is that God never overloads you. He never overloads a circuit. He never demands of you what he has not already given to you. He never asks of you what you cannot give. 
He never gives you more light than you can live up to. So if you see some people who have all this light, this insight, this knowledge from God, you know that, they, that God is measuring your capacity to live up to that certain amount of life. For He never gives more light than you can live up to. He never asks of you anything that He does not already, has not already given you. So that if God makes a command of you, it is a promise that you can at the same time. My little girl came up to me one day several years ago and she said, Daddy, can I have uh, some money? I said, well, what do you want for it? I said, I want to buy you something. Well, that's a pretty good trick, you know. Um, and what I'm doing is I'm giving her money to buy me something. So it depends on what I want, you know. If I want something nice, I'll give her lots of money. If I want something, you know. But, 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 but uh, she said, Dad, give me some money so I can buy you something. That's exactly the way God does he says, this is what I want from you, and here's the resource to go and do it. Isn't that amazing? He's the only one I know that ever does that. I ask this of you, and at the same time, here's the wherewithal to get it done. It's according to your own ability. He never overloads you. He never demands of you what you cannot give. The only explanation, now, now, now I'm going to kind of tread around here a little bit on somebody's toes perhaps. The only explanation for your doing nothing is in the text. It's you're lazy. He said, you wicked and lazy servant. I may call this servant two words and neither one of them are in my top ten most popular words. He said, you're wicked and you're lazy. And this unprofitable servant said to him, said, Lord, I was afraid, so I did nothing. What a terrible thing. Because God never judges us on the basis of our successes. He judges us on the basis of our faithfulness. And the only time you're a failure is when you do nothing. The second reason it's inexcusable to do nothing is also in this text. It's in verse 27. He said, why didn't you just take the talent and just put it in the bank? I mean, now, now you understand what he's saying? Let that leap out at you. He's saying all you had to do with this capacity is just, you know, let it out there. Um, put it out there somewhere, you know. If you just, you know, taking it and put it somewhere, just put it out there. It has an inherent power of its own to produce an increase. I mean, whatever God gives you, there is in that He gives you an inherent ability and power to produce and increase if you'll just put it out there. It wasn't necessary for this man to do anything in order for that talent to produce and increase. It wasn't up to him except that he just became the channel through which God was able, or the master was able to get it out there. That's all God asks of us is that we just take what he gives us and just give it out there, put it out there. And I promise you when you become that channel through which God operates, through which he flows to get it out there, then it begins to produce in and of itself. It's not up to your ability up to your faithfulness. One last simple truth and then we're, we're, we're home free. Not free. Home accountable. Third truth is that one day 
we will give an account for doing nothing. It's inevitable. One day we'll stand before God and we will account to Him. He says when He, when he settled up the account... And there is that day when we stand before God and we try to give an account for what we did not do. Now the reason why that accountable day, that day of accountability is, is, is there is two reasons. There are two reasons. Number one, because it is wicked to do nothing. Now I don't know how many times Jesus... Have you ever noticed how many times Jesus used the word wicked? I looked in my uh, Young's Analytical Concordance and found that he only used the word eight times. And most of the time it was associated with the corporate uh, nation, this wicked and unprofitable nation, etc. I mean, you say, well, you don't use that word. I mean, he didn't just say that word about everything, wicked. Boyd Hunt has a marvelous sermon called On Doing Nothing, and he talks about this uh, government agency investigating all the corruption in government, et cetera, and they came back with a 325-page report of all the crime in the world, and they used the word wicked one time. I mean, that's a heavy word. Do we have the same understanding of wickedness as Jesus did? Why, most of the time we courageously denounce the things against which Jesus scarcely raised his voice. And we accept those things that to him have appalling wickedness and there is nothing that is more wicked to Jesus than to take from him and do nothing with it. Now why were they wicked? Was it because, why was he wicked? Was it because he was prodigal? The apocryphal book, the Gospel of Hebrews says, this apocryphal book didn't make it into the canon, says that this young man took his talent and spent it on flute girls and harlots. We can kind of understand that. That's not what he did. No biblical evidence of that at all. What, did he steal this talent? No, he didn't break into the master's treasury and steal it. Why was he wicked then? Because he took from God and did nothing with what he had. Do we have the same understanding of wickedness? And so Jesus told that parable of the Good Samaritan. And he told about this guy headed down to Jericho and he fell among thieves. I don't hear any preachers jumping on the thieves, do you? That's not even what the parable is about. He told the parable of the man traveling to Jericho, fell among thieves, in order that he might expose not the wickedness of the thieves, but the wickedness of the religious who did nothing. And so the, the priest and the Levite, Levite came by and passed by and did nothing. It's wicked. We'll give an account in the second place because to do nothing is wasteful. Now there are two servants who took their talents and multiplied them. One with five became ten. One with two doubled. But the man with one did nothing. You see, the more you use the talent, the more you get 
from it. The more you use it, the more it increases. Not to, not to use it is to waste it. What you don't use, you, you, you lose. Can I say it again? Maybe I won't stutter this time. What you don't use, you lose. Some of you have had a great ability and capacity for singing and you've not used it. Now you can't sing. Some of you had a capacity and opportunity for prayer and you didn't use it. And now when you pray, it just kind of goes up in smoke, kind of gets above the house, about, about it. Down in South Africa, missionaries told that there's a, young Christians down there have made a practice of going out from their village, from their huts, a, a space to pray, to have their prayer time. And when they see some of their folks neglecting their prayer life, they'll come up to them and say, you've got weeds on your prayer path. And there are some of us this morning about which we could say, you have weeds on your prayer path. You've had the opportunity, the capacity to pray and you've not used it and you've lost it. You even lose the capacity to use it. So that if I took my arm and strapped it to my side, what would it do? It would atrophy. It would die, it would, it would use, lose its ability, its power, its strength. And some of us have taken these things for a hundred years. We've sat in these services with all these insights and we've gone out and we've been good hearers of the word but not doers of the word. And we've lost the capacity of them. For there is no greater destroyer than neglect. If you want to run your garden, you don't have to sow seeds in it, just neglect it. If you want to run a church, you don't have to start rumors on the preacher or begin to stir up dissension. All you got to do is sit and do nothing. But the zinger of this whole thing, the kicker here, is that he said, you take what this guy had and you give it over here to this guy. That's kind of the tittle paraphrase. I want you to know there are people walking around this earth today with your blessing if you've done nothing. There are people in Durand on this earth today who are walking around with the crown that should sit on your head because you had, had it and did nothing with it. And I promise you, if the Word of God is what I think it says, what I think, think it says, God said, I'm going to take that away from you, brother. I'm going to give it over here to somebody who will use it. I don't want somebody walking around with my blessing. I don't want somebody wearing my crown on their head. Have you ever read any of Dwight L. Moody's sermons? You think, when you listen to those, you read those sermons, I mean the, uns, the uncut ones, the, the ones that they didn't fix right, some of those original sermons he preached, you'd think he came right out of the stick. You think it came out of Knox County. I mean, it's terrible language. Awful uh, grammar. He just butchered it. He was almost um, verbally illiterate. He was terrible. And he took two continents 
put one foot on one and one foot on the other and to God he brought those continents. One day a lady came up to him and she's kind of sophisticated and had it all squared away. She had it all where it was at and she said, man that's the worst grammar I've ever heard. She said, if I couldn't beat that I don't think I'd ever get up in front of anybody. That's terrible. Dwight L. Moody said, Madam, I know it is. I know that and I'm ashamed of it. What I'm doing, I'm just trying to use what I have for the glory of God. What are you doing with what you've got? When the lady turned in shame. All I'm trying to do this morning is to remind me that what I don't need is another new insight. What I need is to do something with the knowledge and the insight I already have. How about you? Let's pray together. Father, we come to the most important moment. We know that. The important moment is not when we come together here. It's when we decide to do or not do what you've asked us of, what you've asked of us. And so we pray for courage and for the will to do what we can with what we have, to do something with what we've gained. God, don't let us lose what we could have, come to the end of life and wish that what we say is what we've been. Bless this moment of invitation, Father, and if there are those of us who have wasted as wicked servants, a capacity. Help us to make right that sin of doing nothing. Because I pray in Jesus' name for His sake. Now we have three invitations, just like every service. First invitation is to come and give your heart to Jesus Christ. Now He has given a capacity, He's given an opportunity to receive eternal life. You'll not always have that opportunity. You can neglect it and ignore it until it's no longer there. I know that for a fact. So if you have an opportunity this morning, and you do, to be saved, and you've been touched in your heart that you're lost, and you've been thinking about it, and you know that to be a fact, you've never trusted Christ, you need to come this morning and receive that gift of eternal life that God purchased for you in Christ at Calvary. Second invitation is for those of us to, who need to rededicate ourselves, who need to commit ourselves to a deeper walk with God and a more faithful use of what God has given. Maybe you say, well, yeah, I'll do that. I'll take that responsibility in the church that I've kind of dodged and neglected for a long, long time. Whatever God lays on your heart. Or you may need to come this morning and place your life in the church. Join the church. Be a part of the fellowship that meets here. 
We want you to come if God leads you to come. That's the invitation we just offer to you. Just do what God wants you to do. We'll be rejoicing with you when you do. Let's stand and sing while we, while we come.